This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Bonaventure Chapman. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, you can consider making a monthly donation at patreon.com. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and or view. Father Bonaventure. Father Gregory. How you doing? Oh, I'm not doing bad. Can't complain. So we were thinking, we were talking, uh, that as, as you have noticed, gentle listener, this is the second episode that mm. we will have done, Literature and Cormac McCarthy, thus the volume two at the end of it. We're thinking that the last time we talked about the subject was about three years ago, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Yeah. Um, and things were different then. The old days. Yeah. So we were different then. Uh, basic continuity of personhood, I think, obtains. I, I remember myself and the fact that um, I thought things. Uh, but the podcast was a different thing. Yeah, that's um, right. So take us through it. Um, uh, what was that experience like for you? <laughs> I think that was when we were using, so there are none of these fancy boom mics and <laughs> three cameras. and, in, and we, Although, um, you know, ever ancient, ever new, St. Augustine, I suppose, is that we were actually in the same room mm-hmm. to get a recording. So in a sense, there was a studio, mm-hmm. but the same room, I think, was a room in the Priory uh, that you were visiting from Switzerland on. And we were recording on a MacBook, mm-hmm. I think, with yeah. the MacBook mic. Or do we have our separate? We had separate mics. I, I think th- we had a separate mic. And it was all stationed on a flipped over Tupperware trash can. I think that uh-huh. was like the recording sta- camera station. Yeah. And we sat close. One like sat on a bed. Another one was on like a chair. And there may or may not have been like the sink in the background. Uh, I think we were sitting on a bed. Nope. I think we were side by side on chairs at the desk. And I do think a trash can was involved. I remember a trash can, a flipped yeah. over trash can was, was we, involved. We employed trash cans for propping up, yeah, cameras and microphones on a variety of occasions. Yeah, and yeah. we probably still do, but no one can tell <laughs> because these cameras don't give you 360 yeah, yet. Both of our feet are actually in trash cans right now. Yeah, we wear stuff trash can recording it's a boots. Little, yeah, yeah, it's a little soggy. So it's different, um, yeah. but it's the same Dominican charism. Yeah, still it's two guys, same. still two guys talking. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, now, things have also happened in the life of Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, he got older. He did get older, as yeah. people are wont to do when they live in time and space. Yeah. Um, but he also published some new books. That's right. And unlike most people who try to stagger their grand releases, do you do a grand release? What's a release? A release? New release? New releases. Yeah, yeah. grand openings, new releases. Adjective, subject agreement, although people don't talk about that enough. Um, people typically stagger their grand openings slash new releases. He just went... Back to back. So he doubled down November and October of 2022. So we have these books here on our shelf for yeah. those of you who see things in an audio-visual register. They're beautiful books, too. And they are beautiful yeah, books, and they're, nice. they look very similar, although yes. inversely so. Um, yes. So oh, wow. Yeah, look at that. I, yeah. no wonder, I like Stella Maris a little better because think of the blue, maybe, perhaps? Yeah. Because I can't tell what the other color is. Yeah, it's like a gold. Reddish, maybe? It's like gold. a reddish gold, a golden red, Burnished. golden rod. Okay. Wait a second. Yeah. So uh, he released these two books. Uh, you want to tell us a bit about them? Sure. So this is the first time in 16 years, if I have my dates right. So that'd be yeah, 2006 was The Road was put out, um, which also apparently was an Oprah book, I think, which is surprising. Is it really? I think it was. Yeah. I think that it was, book involves yes, end times yes. cannibalism. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, exactly. Is Oprah into end times cannibalism? Uh, <laughs> she's gone a lot of places in her career. <laughs> Um, and maybe that's a part of it. Um, so, but in any case, 2006, I think it was 2006. I think it was an Oprah book, uh, the road, which of course, Viggo Mortensen, remember he was in his kind of Lord of the Rings, uh, ascendancy. Uh, so he did, he was in that, the movie version of it, Uh which, but that book, the road, 
uh, it's uh, the paperback I can still see is a black cover. I was I read that in the student aid, and it is one of the darkest dark. Like there are points where you think, oh no, and I'm I'm not a man who who shies away from nihilistic death holes of despair and mm-hmm. depression. But yeah. there was a point where I thought this is really like it. My eyes are starting to to phase out. It's like I'm I'm going to you know I'm going to have a stroke or something, or I'm going to pass out because of the despair. Yeah. So in any case, uh, no country for old man. People people know we wrote that. Then uh, the road, and then 16 years later, he just put out two books, as you say, in October November for one of them. The passenger is the first one, about yeah. 400 pages or so, and then its companion vol- volume. I think he calls it an epilogue or something. Cool. Although we'll get into that is uh, Stella Maris. And that's about 200 pages or something, about half the about half the size of that thing. And so this has been 16 years. And he produced these two back to back. They they go together as a diptych, I think. Nice in some fashion. Yeah. Um. And uh. And they are, uh. They're very different they than are. his previous books. Although you you know him from from all the way back. Uh. I have not read as much Cormac McCarthy because I don't have the same. Uh, read everything, single thing that a guy wrote, unless it's like Kant or German, a German philosopher. Whereas uh-huh. you're, that's just for everybody, for yeah. you. So you you know his oeuvre um, <laughs> better than I do. Um, so you probably track him, but he's he's finally moving out of the westerns in this one, I suppose. But they're which very is, different, which is a shame. Uh, so yeah, we we talked about this a little bit in our first mm-hmm. of two Cormac McCarthy episodes. Uh, so he has four books at the beginning of his career, which. Not too terribly many people read, mm-hmm. although once you've done a deep dive, Go. then you have to keep swimming. In for a penny and for a pound. Exactly. A bird in the hand is worth 18... Never mind. Um, so the first one... So Child of God, Orchard Keeper, Suchery. I've forgotten the fourth one. And then the demarcation line is typically drawn with Blood Meridian. That's the book that everyone starts to read. Mm-hmm. and uh, Or maybe you don't read it because it is one of the more terrible nihilistic death texts ever written, mm-hmm. at least in America, because we don't do it too terribly well, but no. when we do it, we do it well. Um, and then at that point, you have the Border Trilogy, No Country for Old Men, and The Road. And he has some, a couple of screenplays in there, too. Yeah, we Sunset Limited. Sunset Limited, the and there's one. another one as yep. well. That's right. Um, but then this, yeah, this is like after a long artistic pause, in yeah. a kind of Terrence Malicky type way, mm-hmm. where you have those movies in the late 70s, and then long pause, and then he comes back with a thin red line. And he's an older man now. He's 89, I think. Is uh, he really? Just, I think that's, yeah, I think he's 89. Wow. So very, very old. You can watch, an, he doesn't do many interviews. He's very, similar to Terrence Malick. He's very quiet, but he has an, he has an interview um, uh, related to this, not particularly this book, but what he where he got the source material from. And he's working on these two books uh, since the 1980s, more or less, on and off. And yeah. so he finally published them since he's getting near the end of his his career, um, but they're their masterpieces. Yeah. So so we talked in the last episode, well, we talked three years ago in our mm-hmm. first Cormac McCarthy episode about the value of contemporary nihilism, not in the sense that we value nihilism right. at yeah, face value, right. uh, except ironically. But the benefit um, of it. But in the sense, like, what, what is it, what kind of service is it performing for the reading public, or what does it reveal to us about our fundamental commitments? And I think that in that episode, we kind of reason to the conclusion that it shows you what people do and don't care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of us aren't really willing to admit what it is that we do and don't care about because we live as if it mattered or as if it didn't matter, but we're not especially reflective. Yeah. So like Blood Meridian, terrifying. No Country for Old Men, terrifying. The Road, terrifying. The Border Trilogy, a little less so at times, yeah. but basically terrifying because you have to confront the fact that either I live for something or I don't. Yeah, and if right. I don't live for something, I need to justify the fact that I continue to exist, mm-hmm. uh, like because it's a conscious choice. So he's not 
turbo existential or turbo, yeah, existential, I think would be the word I would want to use in the way in which some 20th century French philosophers are. Yeah. But you have to, you have to be able to look at the difficulties of human life or the seeming meaninglessness of mm-hmm. human life and render an account or give a kind of response. I think, yeah, I think I think that's a good point about the nihilism and comparing to French existentialism like Sartre and Nazia and such, where you you choose you choose to live in this particular way. Uh, Camus, Camus is the same way. There's a sort of meaninglessness to this, and then you import the meaning to it. There's a, a sense, especially with these books and McCarthy in general, that there's a, a melancholy aspect, a kind of despair involved here. And you'd think, okay, if you were a French existentialist, this is where you step in and you say, I'm going to choose to bring meaning to this. This is where I'm going to live in. Whereas McCarthy, I think, is helpful in that you don't have an option really to choose that. Like, you can't. If meaning is not given in the transcendent sense, um, you are just left with this. And what are you supposed to do with it? And there's no, in a sense, there's no happy ending to it, or there's no happy existence in it. But just humans trying to sort through the lack of meaning or they're missing a meaning or trying to grasp onto something transcendent in a way. So in some ways, it's a realistic nihilism as opposed to like a utopian nihilism. I I think that's what I like about him from that perspective. Yeah, I sometimes liken him to a palate cleanser Mm -hmm. because a lot of times we comport ourselves as if certain things mattered, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe you're pumped about the fact that you have five more Instagram. What do people do on Instagram? Follow or subscribe? Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, There are people on Instagram who are following you at a higher rate than they did previously. And you're like, yes, awesome. Like you need a little nihilism in your life to say nothing matters and no one cares. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Because if you don't have that in your life, then you begin to think that it does matter and people do care. And then you invest your life in that pseudo mattering and that pseudo caring. And then you drift so far from the mark that you'll say things which seven years previously you would have been astonished to hear another person say, you know, it's like, holy smokes, I have become the enemy, you know? So nihilism is a kind of check or corrective to uh, drifting in the direction of like false commitments or the flabbiness of the world, a kind of uh, slouching towards uh, meaninglessness that, that we were in modern, in the modern world, you're since given small bits of supposed meaning and value and things and just getting stuff done in this world, the imminent frame. And that, is not really ultimately meaningful unless it's grounded in some other transcendent purpose, purposiveness. But yet we're still told to be- and believe that this is the case. So yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, okay, so then let's turn to these particular books. Spoiler alerts. Yeah, for those of you who are going to read the books, spoiler alerts. But with that being said, there's not much to spoil mm-hmm. in the kind of typical narrative sense of spoil. Yeah. And I think that's part of the genius of The Passenger is that it starts off with an apparent promise of delivering the narrative goods, and then those goods are never delivered. That's right. Truth be told, you think that it's going to go one way, but it ends up being the stops along the way that you never take, which prove most fruitful or which prove most humanizing. Yeah, that's probably right. Um, All right, so set us up, the passenger, what's the basic plot line, and then how does it unfold within that? Sure, so roughly, well, you start off with a with a, a death scene, so you start off with a, a, a suicide, not a scene, but a, a body found of a, of a girl who actually is one of the lead characters in it, Alicia, um, and uh, Western, Alicia Western, um, changed her name from Alice initially to, to this. She is the sister of her brother is Bobby or Robert Western. The two of them, he's older than her. The two of them are children of... Um, a, nuclear physicist 
who worked in Los Alamos or during the Manhattan Project thing with Oppenheimer and was part of the part of the procedure of the nuclear bomb. These are all extremely interesting things. They start, it starts off with her death, finding her body, um, and then it jumps forward 10 years, basically. So that's in 72, Christmas Day, 72. Uh, and then it jumps forward to, to November, I think, 1980. This isn't very explicit. In fact, some of the chronology is a little bit interesting in the book, but it's more or less the case, about 10 years ahead, where Bobby Western, her older brother, is a, a diver, a salvage diver, and stumbles upon a ship, uh, sorry, a plane, a crash plane underwater, uh, that is missing its box, the special box that has information, and one of the passengers on the manifest. But no one's been able to break, there's no sign of breakage in, the, everyone else is still there. There's no way you would have escaped without having a door open, this sort of thing. So you're set up with this mysterious kind of plot, and then there's this state apparatus, or these other people that are kind of wondering what they found there, what's this sort of thing. So it's setting up a basic thriller kind of um, mystery plot about this other, the passenger. Where is this other passenger? Um, but then pretty soon, as you realize, this is never going to be, this is not actually what's going on, which and actually, I think actually there's a deeper, um, which we'll get to at some point, but there's a meaning to this that it doesn't get resolved at all. Uh, but that's the setup for it. So you're basically following Bobby Western, um, whose sister had killed herself earlier, and he's still connected to her. Um, they're the key protagonists of this, in a way. And um, he's a physicist as well, but he races cars in Italy. And and he's going from place to place. Basically, the book unfolds as conversations at bars and coffee shops with his with his friends about various things involving faith, physics, and philosophy. A deep dive into these issues, no pun intended. Um, okay, so thinking about it then in terms of these conversations, it's fascinating mm. because in other McCarthy novels that we have read, um, he has a narrative framework, and within the narrative framework, you have conversations, and those conversations are often of a what I will call Gnostic sort, mm-hmm. in the sense that people have insight into reality or insight into their lives, which goes far beyond their seeming status or their like socioeconomic background. Mm-hmm. So his characters all operate at a very high and like deliberate intentional level. Yeah. They also speak with a very a very particular vocalic register and they're all wordsmiths or at least it mm-hmm. seems to me. Yes. Like in the Border Trilogy, you know, he's in this kind of mythical zone between Texas and Mexico kind of going back and forth between the two and it creates a an atmosphere of, yeah, kind of mysticism. And you have all of these peasants who are talking to him about the deep things, the deep down things, uh, in a way that's just totally mind-boggling and not not really believable. Yes. Just at, on its straightforward, or from a straightforward perspective. And yet, like, that's the point in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Like, it's supposed to float a little bit free. And so, in this instance, we're not on the border of uh, Mexico and uh, and Texas as we are in let's see, Blood Meridian mm-hmm. and the Border Trilogy. Uh, the road is not well-defined. Um, no Country for Old Men is also in the same place. Yeah, yeah. He loves that. He loves that. Uh, that but that here border. we're in New Orleans, which yeah. is another place that has a kind of mystical feel insofar mm-hmm. as you have like the Cajun residual or the Creole, Catholicism, residual Catholicism, kind of, kind of commitment yep. to faith, things of a certain sort. Yep. Um, and then you also have people of all sorts. You think about the French Quarter or Bourbon Street, and you've got everyone coming from everywhere thinking everything. And so you have a little bit of that eclecticism, um, which which brings with it the idiosyncrasies of people from all walks of life. Um, yeah. And so then he just ends up having conversations, yeah. and those conversations reflect 
something of his thought world of the thought world into which we as a reader are being welcomed into. It's interesting that it's it, there's a there's a similarity to the story of Job and say Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karamazov and here because you have I mean Brothers K is about the kind of four brother the characters right the the brothers and how they respond to a particular situation in life in general uh, and and Job is about dealing with the suffering uh, of the nonsense suffering, it seems, of God. And he has those the friends that come and sit with him and try to explain to him these different different tacks. In similar, a similar situation, you have, I mean, Bobby Western here is trying to come to terms with his the death of his sister yeah. and the meaning of life and the loss of the love of his life in a significant way. Um, and you have these other characters, John Shedden, um, and then others uh, involved who are giving him, in a sense, I mean, they're talking from their own perspective on different things, but they're trying to draw him in and he's listening to them at various different situations, different points uh, with their lives and how their lives are going and what's going on. So they're trying, he's trying to make sense of in a way, an explosion that has happened, a loss of love that parallels the explosion of the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in there. And then trying to sort out triage and work meaning from this sort of event from these different angles. And that's, and we should also mention um, the other thing is, in Cormac McCarthy's books, one punctuation is is down to a minimum, which mm-hmm. is interesting because you can't always tell who's speaking. No, that's easier in this case, but most of the dialogue. But occasionally get caught up in it, and that's to good effect, I think, in general. But two, he generally has inner monologues in italics between things, like in No Country for Old Men, the sheriff is speaking; he's doing his reflecting work. That's present here too in the passenger, but it it is the it is a a, a throwback to. Uh, Alicia's uh, dreams or hallucinations, because it turns out she's she may or may not be crazy, uh, which involves um, a thalamide kid, a small with with flippers for hands, who <laughs> runs a sort of circus show, but is also always berating her with highfalutin words and uh, yeah, very high vocalic register, and discussing with her who she's an expert mathematician from University of Chicago. Blah. These are very smart, complicated people. Yeah. Um, and in the sense, and it, in in some ways, it makes sense that they can have these conversations. In as opposed to the peasant example, they're also in like Dostoevsky, where Dostoevsky's characters live extremely in uh, what you'd say transparent lives to the intellect. Mm-hmm. They're just way too attentive to all the meaning going on in the world when they're not flying at each other or falling. At fly- each exactly, legs. exactly. But here, it, they're, they're these are very attentive and smart people. But they're also, I find, he does a good job balancing out like extremely intellectual people to get at the deep issues of faith, philosophy, and physics, uh, but <laughs> without seeming also a bit staged. Mm-hmm. There is a, that sounds, it seems reasonable. So you have the, so again, there's the back and forth between in the regular tr- font of, of Bobby Western's story and then the italics of Alicia's uh, hallucinations and her experience that then in Stella Maris, you're going to, she's going to be the main character with her psychiatrist. So you can, but again, you're, you're trying to piece together, uh, say an explosion, a loss of life, of love, uh, and what to do about that. And, the just like the bomb is an analogy of that, it's also an analogy of meaning and transcendence in general. There, there's a God-shaped void here, and McCarthy's not going to paint over it in in silly in silly phrases or silly terms. It's going to be really grasp at what's going on here. So, okay, so thinking about these interactions, these conversations mm-hmm. specifically, whether with John Shedden or with W.C. or with Borman or with whomever he crawled, you know, even the Euler, people. Euler, yeah. Euler, yeah, 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 or the people in the bar where he lives for a time. It seems that there are, there are notes of those conversations 
which make life bearable for him. Mm -hmm. So he finds life exceedingly sad and difficult on account of the fact that he has lost his sister whom he loves so very much. And he's never, he's never really seen fit to, or found himself able to move beyond it. Mm -hmm. And he's not even sure if he wants to move beyond it because he wants to retain the memory Mm -hmm. so we can maintain the contact with her because it's that contact with her, which gives his life meaning and purpose. But he knows that he has to be able to share it in some way, shape, or form, at least share his life in some way, shape, or form. And it's fascinating that he, he's respected by these individuals as a faithful friend, like, e- even though his meeting with them is kind of by happenstance, and they can see that his life is a bit of a shambles, just downstream of the loss mm-hmm. that he's suffered, that there is a kind of mutual honor or a mutual respect in their yeah. engagement. Um, the interactions are non-manipulative, non-controlling. Mm-hmm. Like, he sometimes offers money and... They sometimes take it from him, or he sometimes calls in a favor, and they sometimes avail him of sometimes it. Sometimes they pay for everything. It, yeah, it's very natural. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's well written, it's well crafted, and and very plausible. Yep. Yeah. But but I love this this note of like a kind of reverence before the other, mm-hmm. which is a way that you help the other to have a kind of reverence before his experience of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I think in a lot of our interactions, you think about uh, Aristotle's three kinds of friendship where you're focused on the useful good or the pleasant good or the kind of noble good. Yeah. There's a, there's a great nobility to the characters and to their exchanges, even though we're dealing with a transvestite mm-hmm. and a user and a fraud and yep. a swamp rat and a deep sea diver failed formula one racer or formula two racer failed physicist. You know, yep. it's just like their lives are kind of a wreck yep. and yet there's a dignity that's so right. I don't know what is what is McCarthy portraying there. That's uh, well the the inherent dignity to, to the complexities of the modern person. I think um, not that medieval people or ancient people weren't complex, but we tend to treat them as kind of cardboard cutouts, and then we treat and so then we make them uh, heroes and kind of great figures. And we forget about the ordinary people in there, and I think Car- McCarthy brings up these semi-ordinary people as heroes are generally more or less ordinary people but they're extraordinary in that fact like he points you and says now take a look just look a little more fine-grained at these people and realize that there's something dignified and important here in any individual life that there's a story to tell and that they have a, they're searching for something that everyone has the possibility for deeper meaning and attention in a way that we might think in the ancient world um you have a sense of there's heroes and and then there's everyone else who just can't live the life of virtue and live up to that. It's very stratified hierarchical. Whereas, and Cormac McCarthy is kind of bringing the bring that leveled a bit and reminding us that we all have the possibility, and we do live transcendent, meaningful, and interesting, complex lives if we want, if we're attentive to those things that are happening to us and the people that we're exchanging with. I think that's a good point. Okay, so uh, in the time that we have remaining, mm-hmm. let's think about the response on the one hand of Alicia before her experience and then the response of Bobby before his experience. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, let's just talk a little bit about Stella Morris, sure. which is a dialogue yeah. between Alicia and her, her therapist or her psychiatrist yep. in the last few months of her life. Yep. And so it's a series of exchanges. Uh, and she is yeah, just super high-flying. And right. so she's able to ge- deconstruct most of his approach to it, mm-hmm. but she recognizes the limitations of her own deconstructions because they are the very things which keep her from engaging in a meaningful way. Yeah. So she wants that meaningful engagement, and yet she has a sense as to where her life is headed. She knows that it's kind of 
inescapable or unredeemable, right? Yeah. So it, it creates this dread logic which conducts you to the end of the narrative. Take us I mean, that. in a sense, if we do the nuclear reference again, the, the passenger is, is picking up the pieces and making sense of the world after the bomb has gone off and mm-hmm. the horrendous event has happened, loss of love and the situation meaning. Hers in a sense of... Uh, <laughs> The parallel of knowing this is going to be happening. They're going to make this bomb. They're going to drop it. There's going to be this thing. Her her life is she has because she she has she's in love with her with her brother um, and not just platonically. Um, and this is a taboo that's not going to. They can't actually live this way. So that's the interesting part about this is in the sense that meaning is breaking down so much so that you can challenge even the most basic Darwinian. I think he's he's good on this. He takes the most Darwinian taboo of transcendence, incest. And says, let's just push that too. Um, and she's trying to, so what she's trying to do is, yep, to make sh- a sense of what will happen in her life. Um, and she does so by having these conversations, checks into Stella Maris, which is a, 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 um, a, an insane asylum, you could say. Um, when, when you check in, if you check in saying that you're insane, they'll let you go because they know you can't check in as insane if you're, if you're actually insane. Um, and she has conversations with this, with a psychiatrist trying to, it's not a fight between the two of them, but actually she's coming to humanity with him, but she just doesn't go far enough. She's she's initially trying to keep him at distance and play games with him, but as you go on with these eight conversations he has with these sessions before the end, um, she's growing to, 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 to appreciate him and respect him, and actually the end of the course is asking for it to hold his hand, mm-hmm. that she's asked to be held, even though she knows that it's not enough because her love has been uh, her love has been thwarted. So it's an it's a movement and attempt of two people to try to make sense after with the after of rejection and an assumed fall at the end, and that's very 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 human. And so it's it's very focused between the two of them. Um, that's that's her her response is an attempt to try to come to terms with it, but an ultimate failure. Okay, so in this just last few mm-hmm. minutes of the episode, we're thinking about our own difficulties, right? Our own kind of sadness and loneliness and anxiety before the modern condition. Hmm. And we look at the two responses of Alicia on the one hand, and then Bobby on the other hand. Alicia takes her own life. Mm-hmm. Bobby does yep. not, rather. Yep. Uh, and, and it's not as if Bobby stares resolutely into the void. He just finds a way of living out this mortal coil, mm-hmm. um, which isn't the most noble or dignified, but it's it's different right? It's a different way to respond. Based on their two responses, is there something synthetic that we can say about the human response to the difficulty of life in the 20th century, in their case, the 21st century in our own, and maybe virtues of the mind and heart that we can, you know, seek to cultivate or ask God to cultivate? I mean, the the first I would say is that uh, is not be jaded about reality or just to sugarcoat things, but to not expected to give you the answers you're looking for. Transcendence is a very important part of this book. They're trying to find it through mathematics and music, but it's they realize it is necessary. They just don't know how to find it. Elise tries to find it in love, and because she fails with music and, and math, and Western's still trying. Bobby's trying to find it in in these other ways too. Um, so to to not sugarcoat, but actually remind yourselves that actually without transcendence, this world doesn't actually provide a whole lot of help to us. But with transcendence, with then therefore love, uh, you can actually make your way through it. So the, the nihilism is over is overcome, not by them, but via negativa in the way of saying this is not, neither of these are good ways to go, but that we should just imp- throw our hands, throw ourselves into the embrace of another, as Alicia does at the end of Stella Maris. Yeah, and I think another thing too is the way that they use their intelligence is in some way, shape, or form the source of their undoing, 
Because Bobby is constantly making comparisons. He's eminently conscious of the fact that he, he can't cut it as a mathematician or as a physicist, probably not as a race car driver, but that has something to do with, you know, physical prowess more so than with intelligence. And I think by virtue of the fact that they um, can't contribute in the way in which they have seen their father to contribute or Oppenheimer to contribute or, you know, Dirac, and I can't pronounce a lot of these names, um, that, that, that there's nothing to be mm -hmm. done, right? Whereas... Um, they're, they're trying to come up with some grand solution or some ultimate yeah. contribution yep. or some, you know, sweeping narrative. And in the absence of that, then they despair of all like narrative continuity or narrative contribution, where I think for us, it's, it's reflective of the fact that, uh, one of the great boons or one of the great gifts of Christianity is the revelation of humility. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at ancient accounts of virtue, humility doesn't really appear mm -hmm. in the way in which it does in the Christian tradition. You know, yeah. you look at Plato, you look at Aristotle, you look at Cicero. Uh, but, you know, humility is revealed to us in the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ yep. and the conditions which he chose uh, for his entry into the world. And I think that each of us, you know, comes into the world as the very concrete fruit of God's love for us and of our parents' love for us. Uh, and we're, we're called to live this life in, in, in this time and in this place and in these circumstances. And maybe we're given five talents. Maybe we're given two talents. Maybe we're given one talent. Maybe we're given half, maybe a quarter, maybe an eighth of a talent. It's, it's not too terribly important. What is important as you preached on one time when we were celebrating a house mass for my family like a year and a half ago, is that you make good on the talent that you've been given. Not in like a crass consumer mm -hmm. sense, but in the sense that like, it's only because the man who received the one talent looked at his talent, compared it to those of the others, said it's not enough by comparison, mm -hmm. and then despaired of making anything good of it, that he comes in for condemnation. Both the man with the five and with the two receive equal praise for having received, for having recognized and received what they've been given. And so you have here two incredibly talented, incredibly smart mm -hmm. people, but their intelligence becomes for them a stumbling block because they can't see it as a, a particular, a concrete expression of God's love in the midst of their, you know, like the the brokenness, yeah. the woundedness of their love. Um, so it's kind of like, I suppose it's a little bit crass to say like, it's about, it's not about this. I mean, it's about human people, but I think that something that it can help us to embrace is the fact that God loves us in a particular way. And when we consent to and cooperate with that, something good will come. It might be modest, it might be simple, but it will be good provided only that we can mm -hmm. see it for such. I don't yeah. know. Th last thoughts. Yeah. The, I, I want to go back to the passenger metaphor and the whole thing where I've, I've just been reflecting on it uh, in that there's a missing passenger and there's a missing intelligible box that makes sense of things, and yet it needs to be there. And the question is, what do we, where do we find that? And I think McCormick McCarthy is saying that you can't fill it with anything else, either mathematics, truth, this sort of thing. And in these conditions, McCormack is saying we can't fill it. These people can't fill it with God. But we want to say, actually, and, and I think rightfully so, that that's, that is, he is the passenger that's meant to be there. It's on the manifest that brings the intelligibility to whatever uh, destruction is involved in life and can get us out of it. And there's no other way you can find around that. Yeah. Boom. All right. So, folks, if you have already read, we hope this is helpful uh, in making sense of what you did read. If you haven't yet, perhaps this is an encouragement. Um, Cormac McCarthy is a, is a strong, heady wine, but he does not disappoint. So thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Godsplaining. Um, if you would consider making a, a donation to the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash godsplaining. Um, also be sure to like subscribe and leave a five-star review. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And then if you check out the episode description or show notes, depending on where you get your podcasts, you'll find links there where you can follow, um, yeah, paths to merchandise at godsplanning.org and to, uh, further details about ups, upcoming Godsplanning events. So at the beginning of this month, 
we uh, yeah we made an announcement about our all comers retreat, which is to take place at Malvern Retreat House just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The dates on that are June 16th through 18th, and we're super appreciative to the benefactors who made donations to lower the cost for all those who apply. Um, so yeah, you can find out information about that also at godsplinning.org, and we hope to see you there over the summer. So all comers, that's to say, 21 and over, you are the most welcome. Um, so boom, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on Godsplaining.